Good morning, and thank you for tuning in again. I hope this video finds that you and your families are doing well. My name is David Creech, and I'm with the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can see our times of services on the screen here, and you can check out our website at www.godsredeemed.org. It all has, also has the times of services there. Today we're going to continue our study in the New Testament book of Acts. <clears throat> Last week we finished up chapter 1 and got about halfway through chapter 2. We spent a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit in general. Who is the Holy Spirit? As well as, you know, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? And that was to kind of set the, the groundwork for the remainder of our studies in Acts. In chapter 2, we talked about how that promise of power was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the twelve, the apostles, were indeed baptized by the Holy Spirit. And just like the resurrection of Jesus, this power, this manifestation of the Holy Spirit is not something that happened under a shroud of mystery where only a few people witnessed it. Uh, this was not some closed-door society of 12 men who invented some wild story and who vowed to tell the tale and to keep the lie and, and to take that lie with them to their deaths, um, despite persecution and, and even torture. No, this was a manifestation of immense and undeniable proportions. There in Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost, one didn't have to be a Christ follower to know that something incredible, something truly amazing had happened. Uh, we talked about how there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 2. Uh, that's what it says in the uh, New King James Version. The New American Standard says there was the sound of a violent rushing wind. So we have an audible confirmation of this event, not just to the 12 apostles, but apparently multitudes of people there in Jerusalem heard it, as we see in, um, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 6 there. You know, when I read about that sound of a mighty rushing wind, what, what comes to my mind is the sound that a tornado makes. Now, no one can deny that that sound is the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Now, I've never personally been close enough to a tornado to hear that with my own ears, and I, and I hope to never be that close to one, but I've heard it through videos that other people have recorded, and it fits the description I often hear from ear witnesses, I'll call them, uh, that the sound is like that of a freight train passing by. <clears throat> but regardless, this sound of a mighty rushing wind was loud enough that multitudes of people heard it and rushed together to find out what it was. Certainly an audible confirmation of this event. Uh, second, there were what was described as tongues of fire. These were perhaps bits of flame in the shape of tongues that rested on each of them. And so we have a visual confirmation of the event. 
And then the 12 apostles began to speak with other tongues. The New King James Version says the the English Standard Version and some other translations will say that they uh, began to speak in other tongues. Now, regardless, it's clear from the context that they were speaking in different languages. What languages were they? Well, the various languages of the nations where these devout men were from, as we see a list of them in verses 9 through 11. So again, there was another audible confirmation of this momentous event, and there were many witnesses to it. Now, Peter's sermon is highlighted for us there in chapter 2. We talked about that some last week. This week, I intend to finish up chapters 2 and 3. I know that sounds hard to believe, but (laughs) although I don't have a lot of information that I'm going to cover in chapter 3. So for now, I want us to sort of zero in on the final words of this first gospel sermon. If you'll uh, kind of fast forward with me over to Acts chapter 2 and verse 36. There we go. Uh, We hear the stinging rebuke of Peter that we mentioned at the very end of last week's class, where he says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Wow, can, can you picture this crowd of people? All of them hearing the wonderful works of God, spoken in their native language or dialect by uneducated men, no less. And then the realization slowly sinking in that Jesus was, in fact, who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the chosen one or the anointed one of God. And I can almost feel the lump in my throat. No doubt the same feeling they would have had as they fought to remember back over these events. Many of them may have thought, wait a minute, you mean that man Jesus whom we mocked and ridiculed and spat on, Uh, That same Jesus whom the Romans beat and whipped. That same Jesus who, when Pilate tried to release him, we cried out instead, crucify him, crucify him. That same Jesus who was brutally and shamefully crucified on a cross back at Passover, he was the Messiah? Then as they reflect on Peter's words and the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah and slowly come to the realization that all the evidence said, yes, he was the Messiah. It says in verse 37, that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The New King James Version says that, along with a number of other translations, cut to the heart. Some other translations will say that they were pricked, their hearts were pricked, or their hearts were pierced. Now think about it. What does it mean to be pierced to the heart? In a physical sense, if we are pierced to the heart, if someone stabs us in the chest and the blade of the knife pierces our heart, Or someone runs us through with a spear and the tip of the spear pierces our heart. Or if we are shot and some part of the bullet pierces our heart, what does that mean? 
Well, it means that there's no more discussion. That's not something we just shirk off and walk away from. If someone pierces our heart, are we going to be concerned about anything else? In the same way, there was no more discussion for these men. Excuse me. For perhaps the first time, many of these men came face to face with the reality that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And having realized that, they were cut or pierced to the heart. You know, when the evidence is clear, when we are convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and there is no more discussion, then hopefully we do what these men did, and we ask the simple question that these men asked. Just four words. What shall we do? Now, we need to pay close attention to Peter's answer here. Because our hearts can be pierced the same way the hearts of these men were pierced. And that could move us to ask that same question. What must I do? And believe it or not, many today would respond with, what do you mean, what must you do? There's nothing for you to do because Christ has done it all. Now, Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could have said that. Peter could have said, you know what, I'm glad you asked that question, but there's nothing for you to do. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. That's it. What else is there to do? And the word do today has almost become a a dirty word in religious circles, as if the word do suggests that we're trying to earn our way to heaven or something. But you know, every time someone in the New Testament asked the question, what must I do? Then they were told what they needed to do. And then they did it. (laughs) If we ask what we must do, just like the believers in the first century did. And we are told what we must do, just like believers in the first century were told. And then we do it. Do you know what that implies? It it doesn't imply that we're trying to earn our way to heaven through works or something. It implies obedience. Now, how important is obedience to salvation. Well, let's listen to the words of Jesus over in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, <clears throat> where Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's just stop right there and point out a couple of things before we finish that verse. The Greek language had no imperative. Now, I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't pretend to be, but I can, I can read and study what the Greek scholars said, and and they said the Greek language has no imperative. So words would be repeated for emphasis, like we see here, Lord, Lord, or uh, verily, verily, or holy, holy, holy. And by the way, that's the only word that's used three times like that. I might also point out the obvious in this passage, uh, something that should be um, shocking 
maybe a little disturbing to a lot of people. Who, who is going to call Jesus Lord except those that believe in him? Now think about that for a minute. Jesus himself said over in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, he asked this rhetorical question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? I mean, that's the height of absurdity, isn't it? To call someone your Lord or your master, but then not do what they tell you to do. So if we go back over here, uh, to Matthew seven twenty one, if Jesus so plainly points out that not everyone who calls him Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, then who does enter the kingdom of heaven? He who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's the last part of verse 21 there. Now, if that doesn't imply the necessity of obedience to salvation, then I don't know what does. Well, let's listen to what Peter said that they needed to do as we go back over to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. He, He says, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now look, it really doesn't get any simpler than that. People try to make it complicated, but it's not. If there's any, still any doubt in your mind about what a person must do in order to be saved, then please stay tuned. Like I said in the first lesson, the book of Acts has sometimes been referred to as the book of conversions because it's absolutely filled with examples of people being saved, of people being added by Christ to his church. And we can read these conversion stories and we can be confident that if we do exactly the same thing these first century Christians did to be saved, then we'll be just as saved as they were. Now, before we move on, I want to briefly discuss the last part of verse 38 there, where it says, and you shall receive the gift, singular, of the Holy Spirit. Now, we mentioned last week about how there's often confusion surrounding these things. And we brought up the the gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit as an example. You know, who who had them? Uh, How did they get them? What was their purpose? How long did they last? And so forth. These are questions we might ask about these gifts. We'll uh, we'll talk about that a lot as we go. but, But here we have Peter saying, do these things. Repent and be baptized. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what was or what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Some would say that the gift of the Holy Spirit is referring to the fruit of the Spirit, discussed over in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 and the following verses there. Uh, There are nine fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, peace. Long-suffering is the word you see here in the New King James. Some translations will use the word patience there. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I wouldn't necessarily argue with that explanation. Certainly, the Holy Spirit can work within someone through the gospel message to transform them. Um, The result is 
all of these various fruits of the Spirit we will have if we live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit, as we see there in verse 25. Now, some would say that this gift is in reference to speaking in tongues, what people today sometimes refer to as glossolalia. Of course, when most people talk about speaking in tongues today, they're referring to some language of spiritual ecstasy or some utterance that they claim only God can understand. We spent a lot of time talking about that last week. But but as we pointed out then, anytime someone in the New Testament spoke in tongues, it referred to the ability someone had to speak in an existing language, a language that was previously unknown to them. And by the way, not every believer in the first century received the gift of speaking in tongues. So, so this gift to mention here uh, in Acts chapter 2 um, has to be talking about something else. Some would say that although the word gift is singular here, it is referring in general terms to the gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's very important to note, and I said this before, that these gifts could only be received through the laying on of the apostles' hands. Now, now why would I say that? Well, we haven't gotten there yet, but, but let's turn over and look at Acts chapter 8 real quick. Verses 14 through 19, where Philip is, uh, he's preaching in Samaria. Recall how the gospel spread largely due to persecution, from Jerusalem to the surrounding region of Judea and then northward to Samaria. Well, the apostles in Jerusalem hear that Samaria had received the word of God. So they sent Peter and John. Now, why did they send Peter and John? Well, because Peter and John were apostles because Peter and John could lay their hands on believers and they would receive gifts of the Holy Spirit. So why didn't Philip just do that? I mean, he was already there. We can read the first part of Acts 8 and see that Philip had these gifts, a number of them anyway. And in verse 13, let's just scroll right up to that there. In verse 13, it says this Simon, who had been a sorcerer, by the way, was amazed at the things that he saw, the miracles and the signs that Philip was doing. And he himself believed and was baptized. So why didn't Philip just do that? Uh, Why didn't he lay his hands on the people? Why, Why send Peter and John all the way from Jerusalem? Because again, only the apostles could lay their hands on the believers and impart gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let's kind of read these verses here from uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 14 through 19. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they uh, sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, 
he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So in verse 18 there, it says, He offered them money. It's interesting. Interesting bit of trivia for you is, is that our word, simony, comes from this. It's, it's Simon with a Y on the end. Simony, it's the, it's the practice uh, uh, down through the years of buying or selling religious or spiritual gifts. Simony. Uh, I think we could all read the text here and come to the conclusion that Simon had good intentions. He wanted to be able to lay his hands on people and, and, and give them the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But uh, Simon quickly realized, uh, and I'm not going to ruin the story for you. You'll have to wait until we get to around chapter 8. But Simon quickly realized that such benefits were not for sale. And that hasn't uh, hasn't stopped greedy men from doing this down through the years, but is just as wrong today as it was back in the first century. So then, in order to more fully answer our uh, question about what this gift, singular, of the Holy Spirit was, I, I, I do think it's important to mention what the gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit were. Now, I have this listed here. <clears throat> it's kind of, kind of interesting that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, we have in order the enumeration or the listing of the spiritual gifts, Uh, That's in chapter 12. In chapter 13, the duration um, is discussed. And then in chapter 14, the regulation of spiritual gifts. Uh, So we'll we'll come back in a minute to the enumeration, the listing of those spiritual gifts. Let me say something first about the duration and regulation. Um, This is another one of my detours. Uh, Brian Walsh pointed out last week uh, that he liked how I had totally embraced the detour, <laughs> even the point of labeling my slides with it. Well, I don't want to do that this week, but but hopefully I won't get too far off track. Um, uh, let's talk about duration for a second. We sometimes think about 1 Corinthians 13 as the chapter on love. And, and that's true. Uh, verse 4 begins with the familiar passage, Love suffers long and is kind, does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, and so on. But nestled right there in verse 8, right after love never fails, it says whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now, that doesn't mean that the ability to prophesy, and by the way, uh, the, the prophets were mouthpieces of God, and there was typically a telling and a foretelling role, but not always both. Uh, the ability to prophesy, to tell, to teach, uh, <clears throat> this doesn't mean that that ability or the ability to speak foreign languages or that all knowledge, for instance, would just disappear. Now, how would that be if, if all knowledge just disappeared? No, what it means is there, there would come a time when these things, as spiritual gifts, 
would no longer be necessary. Now, when would they no longer be necessary? Well, verses 9 and 10 right here tell us, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but then that which is perfect, that's the New King James uh, word here, uh, but a lot of translations use the word complete, and, and that's really the meaning of the word perfect here. When that which is complete has come, then that which is in part will be done away. One translation says, we know partially and we prophesy partially. Okay, But when that which is complete has come, then there's no more need for the partial. Now, some of you may be scratching your heads or wondering, well, what is he talking about? What is this saying? Well, let's go back to the purpose of the Holy Spirit to reveal the will of God, to confirm it through miracles and signs and wonders, and to seal it. And remember, the first century Christians did not have the luxury of being able to hold a copy of the New Testament in their hands like we do today. Uh, Recall that the book of Acts alone covered a period of about 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. So it would have been at least 30 years after the resurrection of Christ before the book of Acts was available. The other books and letters of the New Testament had to be assembled together and then considered that for many years, all of that had to be copied and distributed by hand. Also recall the Holy Spirit was guiding the apostles into all truth, but that truth was being revealed incrementally. So, in the absence of the complete revealed will of God, the Holy Spirit used these spiritual gifts to continue revealing and to continue confirming. Now, what does 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13 and verse 10 mean when it says, when that which is perfect, when that which is complete has come? Well, it is referring to the complete revealed will of God. Once Once they had the complete revealed will of God, then there would be no need for the partial, and it would be done away. And think about it. If these gifts could only be bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, then once all the the apostles died, these gifts would vanish away. Now, real quick regarding the regulation of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 14, it, it might seem odd that Paul would need to discuss that. But just like any gift from God, those gifts could be misused, and they were being misused. So Paul is compelled by the Holy Spirit in his first letter to the church at Corinth to discuss the proper use of those gifts. Now, let's get back to the the enumeration, the listing of those gifts, and we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse Eight, but we're going to start reading in verse 4. Uh, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are differences or diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the Spirit. Now, does this mean that that 
no one else had wisdom or knowledge. No, it simply means that that this gift was an increased measure of wisdom and knowledge related to spiritual things. So kind of bridge that gap until that which was complete, the complete revealed will of God had come. Um, Verse 9, to another faith by the same spirit. Again, does that mean no one else had faith? Does that mean you didn't have faith unless someone laid their hands on you and gave you that gift of the Holy Spirit? No, you had to have faith to, to become a Christian. This was an extraordinary measure of faith. Remember, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And the word of God was not complete at this point. Let's see, uh, to another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, discerning of spirits, to another, different kinds of tongues. Remember, we're talking about uh, foreign languages here. And to another, interpretation of tongues. That brings us back around to our original question from the last part of Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Repent and be baptized, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And again, what gift is being talked about here? I'm just going to tell you what it is, and then tell you why I believe that. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the spoken or written word by which we are saved. Uh, Romans 1.16 tells us that the gospel is God's power to save. Romans 10 and verse 17 tells us that faith comes from hearing the word of God. Now, whether that's spoken or written, and of course, faith is absolutely essential to salvation. In just a few verses prior, in verse 13, Paul reminds the Christians at Rome of the promise of the Spirit through the prophet Joel. What was that promise? That whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Incidentally, Peter makes mention of that same promise uh, earlier in chapter 2 of Acts. So this, this gift is a promise of the Spirit that goes all the way back to the promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter uh, 12 and in verse 3. Now, if we look at verses 1 through 3 collectively, we see what we sometimes refer to as the threefold promise. The, the land promise, the nation promise, as you see highlighted in red there. And then the last one we sometimes call the seed promise. Because through Abram, who would later be called Abraham, through him all nations would be blessed. And of course Christ was in his lineage, and so through him all nations would be blessed. And then finally in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 14, it confirms that the promise made to Abraham was a promise of the Spirit through faith. So remember, the Holy Spirit's role was to reveal the will of God through the Word of God. So the gift of the Holy Spirit is the spoken or written word by which we are saved, by which everyone who calls on the name of the Lord receives salvation, a gift that was in the mind of God from the beginning and promised by the Holy Spirit as far back as Genesis 12. So so moving on right here in in Acts chapter uh, 40 and, and on, 
In Acts chapter 2 there, we see tremendous growth, explosive growth in the church. And notice what it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, that uh, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now that's a lot of baptisms, isn't it? Now I want to round out chapter 2 by looking at the final words recorded by Luke here in Acts 2 in verse 47. The last half of that verse says, And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now a couple of questions from this passage before we move on to chapter 3. <clears throat> who adds people to the church? The Lord does. Jesus does. Uh, what church does he add them to? Well, his church. The, the church we are seeing built here in Acts 2 is the same church that Jesus promised that he would build, future tense, over in Matthew uh, chapter 16 and verse 18. And we're just going to look at verses 13 through 18 real quick. It says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, <clears throat> Son of Man was a common expression Jesus used of himself. He was, of course, the Son of God, but he was also a man born of woman, and therefore Son of Man. And so Jesus asked the question, Who do men say that I am? And his disciples answered and said, Some say John the Baptist. Some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And in verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we sometimes call that the great confession, or the good confession, as Paul called it over in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, where Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So, the good confession. But notice here in Matthew 16 and verse 18, where Jesus said, I will build future tents. At the time that Jesus says this, the church is not yet in existence. We see in Acts 2 the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to build the church. Now, another question, this is a little bit of a detour again, what would the church be built on? Some say Peter. Uh, at least that's how they interpret this passage. But, but notice that Jesus does not say, you are Peter and upon you I will build my church. Um, also, the name Peter comes from the masculine Greek word petros, and, and that does mean a rock or a stone, but it refers to a small stone. Um, and not the smallest of stones, that would be the Greek word lithos, but still a small stone. When a much larger stone, a massive stone, something that is immovable is intended, then the feminine word Petra is used. So even though the name Peter does mean rock, 
very different words are used here for Peter and for rock. So Jesus was not saying that he would build his church on a man, on Peter. So what was Jesus saying? In verse 18, when he said, on this rock, what rock? The word this is what is known as a demonstrative in the English language. And much like personal pronouns, we depend on the context to give us some clues. And here we have to work our way backward to find the object of the demonstrative. What is the word this in verse 18 referring back to? Well, it can't be referring back to Peter, so what is it? Well, we've done this before, haven't we? Well, let's work our way backward in the text to find the object that the demonstrative word this is referring to. In the previous verse, Jesus said to Simon Barjona, who's Simon Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. What is it that flesh and blood had not revealed to Peter? Well, in verse 16, we see that it is not Peter, but the confession Peter made. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what was the church to be built on? The confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, John would provide the whole purpose for the writing of his gospel near the end of that book in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Again, it is on that confession that the church would be built. And we see that in action over in Acts chapter 8 and verse 35 in the following verses. I know we haven't gotten to Acts chapter 8 yet, and uh, i got a feeling by the time we get there, we will have talked about all this. But um, here, Philip is talking to this man from Ethiopia about Jesus. This man is on a long journey home after being in Jerusalem for Pentecost. So let's read these uh, three or four verses here. Uh, verses 35 to 38. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture preached Jesus to him. Now what scripture are we talking about? Well, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading from Isaiah 53, a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Okay, so beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Again, that is the good confession, the great confession upon which the church would be built now, I know we've spent a lot of time in chapters 1 and 2, a lot of that laying the groundwork for the rest of our studies in Acts. Uh, I don't have a lot that I want to cover in chapter 3, so if you'll bear with me for just a few more minutes, we'll sail through that and pick up with chapter 4 next week. So <clears throat> recall from our overview of the first 12 chapters that in chapter 3, we see a man who is lame from birth, uh, a man who is laid up daily at the gate of the temple, begging for 
alms. Now, that's one of those strange words that seems plural because it has an S on the end, but there's no such thing as an alm, singular. Uh, alms refer to any food or money or clothing given to the poor out of pity or compassion. In fact, the Greek word for alms uh, the, means compassion. At any rate, this man is lame. He cannot provide for himself, and so he is totally dependent on others for help. He sees Peter and John going into the temple and asks for alms. And this is where Peter exclaims in Acts chapter 3 and verse 6. Let's get over to that. uh, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up. And walk. Uh, I want you to notice from verses 6 through 10 that again, this is not something that's done in a vacuum. There are many witnesses. And, and by the way, this was not one of those questionable occurrences where someone with an ailment gets partial or temporary healing. This wasn't a case where someone unknown to the people had this miraculous healing performed on them and then they disappear into the night. No, this was unmistakable and it was witnessed by many who knew this man. Uh, The legs of this man, lame from birth, would have been nothing but bones covered in skin. You know, no musculature at all to support his body and allow him to walk, no matter how bad he may have wanted to. And notice that he doesn't slowly get to his feet. He didn't have some gradual restoration of muscles and then tendons and then months of physical therapy that allowed him to walk again. No, verses 7 and 8 tell us that immediately he was walking and leaping and praising God. I mean, to the point where it says that all who saw it were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And once again, we see the apostles using this gift of the Holy Spirit to confirm the words they were about to speak. Now, anytime we see something like this happening, it was usually to get the people's attention. It was the Holy Spirit saying, listen up to what these men are about to say. And say it, they did. In, in verses 11 through the end of the chapter, they are preaching there in the temple. They begin that sermon in verse 12 by asking the question, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? <clears throat> The very God they professed and believed in was displaying his awesome power before their very eyes. Some refused to to see it. But as we will see in Acts chapter 4 and verse 4, many of those who heard the word believed. And so we're out of time today. Thank you for watching or listening, whichever the case may be. Tune in next week, and Lord willing, we'll see how Peter and John are imprisoned for their preaching and teaching of the gospel.